Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. Dr. Doctor is now the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members, like Andrew and me, are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. And it should be noted that the views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of the co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Today, our special guest will be Chris Faddis. Chris is the co-founder and chief operating officer of Solidarity HealthShare, an option instead of health insurance. But more on that later. First, I have a medical news item I wanted to discuss with Andrew, and I chose something from the Mayo Clinic proceedings from October of 2018. And the t- title of the article was Medication Non-Adherence. There's an app for that. There seems to be an app for everything. There's an app for confession, although they tell me you can't go to confession on the app. You still have to go to a priest. Wait so. a minute. Wait, that doesn't count? Um. No. And actually, it's our own bishop here from Fort Wayne who give the imprimatur for that app. And Um, I I use it frequently. But that's just an aside. No, the non-adherence we're talking about here related to medications means patients not taking their medication. And are there ways an app can help improve that? Which brings us to the question, why don't patients take medications that doctors give them after the patients take the time out of their day to travel to see a doctor They've got something wrong, the doctor prescribes something, and yet they don't do it. That's a great question. And, you know, I think it's different for everybody, but one of the things I see routinely in talking to patients is a lot of times they just want to know what's going on. They would just like an opinion, whether or not they even want to have it treated, they just want to have the the solace or confirmation of what the way they view their their disease process, if it's accurate or inaccurate, if we agree with them. Um, A lot of people, after they, you know, I'll make a recommendation and they'll say, well, I'll just be honest. I'm not going to take a medicine for it. I just wanted to know what you thought. Well, no, no, I think it's important that you take this medicine. <laughs> and at that point, they, they'd rather not, which is, you know, their prerogative, I think. I, I, I kind of take a different angle than a lot of people, I think, on this. I think it should be up to the patient how much they want to delve into medical diseases where I think a lot of times you look at guidelines. If the person has X, Y, and Z, they should be doing this. And when they don't do it, it's their failure. You know, a lot of people don't want to take medicines, even if it would help them. They don't. And they've break down the non-adherence into three categories. The people who never fill a prescription, the people who start it but then stop it early without their doctor's advice, and those who just <clears throat> take it irregularly. You know, out of every seven days, they might take three or four. And they did a study of 700,000 patients in the United States and found that on average, 50 to 72% of patients actually filled new prescriptions And this was looking at six chronic illnesses, a seventh chronic illness, gout, you know, that incredible joint pain from deposition of assault. Only 37% or just over one in three filled the prescriptions. Now, medication cost is thought to be one of the reasons. But in Canada, where medications cost much less, still 31% of prescriptions were unfilled in a study of 16,000 patients. So it's probably more than cost. It seems to me that or at least my initial thought would be that it's a communication problem. The patient, for for whatever reason, probably a lot of different reasons, does not agree with the treatment program or plan that the doctor has recommended. And what what I would interpret from this is that the doctor doesn't realize that the patient disagrees. Right. And it would be good to know. Uh, I mean, if they they don't want it, then that saves a lot of hassle. But it's good to know there are benefits and risks to taking a medicine and benefits and risks to not taking it. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, that, that group of folks who filled it, took it for a few days and then stopped, I, I get to meet with a lot of people who would fit into that category. And, and one of the things that I see as a barrier there are perceived interactions. You know, all medicines, if they, if they have a positive action on the body, they all are able to have negative reactions as well. Sure. However, there's, there's a, a larger group of things that are perceived as reactions that may well not be related to the medication at all. You know, we in science, we have the idea of the placebo. You know, if, if a patient takes a sugar pill and we compare that to something else, we know that the sugar pill will provide 35% improvement yes. of whatever your ailment is. Um, I think if people who have a, a generally negative view of medicine uh, 
reluctantly obtain a prescription, my assertion would be that uh, probably approaching that 35 percent, they're, they're seeing things that may not be necessarily related to that medicine and attributing it to to the medicine. So, see, I, I knew I didn't like medicine. I, I have this backache as soon as I started taking this <laughs> blood pressure medicine, so I'm going to stop. And so I see that a lot. And so the, the biggest thing that I try and do and I'd, I'd encourage patients to do is be totally transparent. You know, if, if your doctor's mad at you for not taking your medicine, that's probably his fault. You know, it, it, it strikes me as a communication problem. I think a patient should be able to, to take their medicine or not, totally up to them. But I think the biggest thing that leads to frustrations on everyone's side is lack of communication. And this lack of communication and non-adherence was estimated in a study from 2009 to cost the U.S. healthcare system at that time $289 billion a year on health that could have been improved by those medications had they been taken. That's just an estimate. Now, interestingly, there are over 50 companies developing smart software <laughs> for your medication container. Now, what, is that, what does that mean? It means it's a little container that can tattle on you, that can <laughs> tell others whether or not it's been opened or not, whether or not What's in there is being used. She whiz. Yes. So they say, well, we could get more medicine taken with this thing. It might beep and let you know, oh, take your medicine. You haven't, you haven't paid attention to me yet today. Yeah. Or we'll also get more data on what's going on in the real world because we'll be able to track that. Now, the potential harms are that this is a high-tech solution to a low-tech problem. Yeah. You know, why spend it? And most people me included, and you don't have to be a Luddite to think this, that most of us would like a quiet plastic pill bottle that does not speak to us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that seems to be overshooting it. Uh, you know, we can, there's always incredible ways to, to monitor adherence or compliance to this. But at the end of the day, if the patient does not want to take a medicine for some reason, the, the pill bottle is not going to fix that. You know, I, th I think that just needs to go back to education, why it's important, why the patient thinks that it might be bad for them or they don't want to do it, and then meeting in the middle. So I, I don't know if we can computerize that. No. And in this article, the discussion is who should be empowered to enforce this behavior among patients? Would it be used to raise uh, insurance rates if you're not as compliant as others? Oh, I'm sure it would. And I then there's a the whole thing about, well, what about patients who take their pills out of their bottles and they put them in a daily minder thing so they make sure they take their pills every day. Yeah. Um, well, and I mean, to some extent, Tom, we're already, I, I get faxes on a daily basis, at least weekly basis from insurance companies saying patient X has not picked up that prescription that you <gasps> sent in for them. You should reach out to them and tell them that they need to do this. <clears throat> and then the, the question is, is, you know, what, what are we supposed to do? Or maybe a patient <laughs> that you saw eight months ago, and you were hoping to see them every six months, this is recommended, and, you know, they, they didn't pick it up, they didn't come back, are they going someplace else, did they switch medicine, what happened, who really knows, but the insurance company most certainly wants to enforce the patient to take that medicine so that they save money on the back end when the patient doesn't get right. sick. It's, it's missing the point that the physician-patient relationship is supposed to be a mutual covenant. It's not a paternalistic one where somebody has power over the other. But that's the way it's perceived by a number of big government people. That's the way it's perceived in um, uh, other countries where there's you know single-payer health care. Oh, 100%. And when, whenever you get the single-payer health care involved or even just few payers like we see in many areas in America, it comes down to cost and economics. They, right. they don't – I mean, now I'm painting with a wide brush, but a lot of insurance companies, they don't care if – if I'm happy or if the patient's happy or even if this is a, a fruitful encounter or relationship, they care if they're going to have to spend more money on either of us in the future. And so that's their prerogative. I, I would probably be against the pill bottles reminded people. You know, I'd, I'd rather have patients do what they like but just make sure that we're all on the same page. So in other words, Andrew's advice sounds like don't invest in companies building those apps. <laughs> They'll probably get a big contract though, so I don't know about investment. <laughs> no, that, that, that was just a joke. Do not take this as invest, investment advice. Uh, so the best thing, I think, and Andrew alluded to this, is that we as physicians knew, need to explain medications the best we can to patients, provide them the least expensive and the easiest dosing options. But then 
from your perspective as patients, we doctors would appreciate what he said. Transparency. Let us know what you're really thinking. A hundred percent agree. So, you know, from that, Andrew last year did a show on the influenza vaccine. I thought it would be worth it for us to hear an update on this year's vaccine. I'm curious to know, is it any better than last year's? How have the mutations been, Andrew? Well, you know, they are they are still changing. These times, they are changing. Uh, and every year, the, the flu changes and the flu shot changes. And so it is a moving target. And you know, in, in medicine, we like to think of ourselves as having a scientific outlook on the world, scientists of sorts. And so we're always trying to look back at, okay, how'd last year go? Good, bad, indifferent. What can we do different this year? And so in summary of last year's flu season, where we can gain information for this year, there was about 80,000 people, 80000 people who died in America from the flu. Wow. And so I think that's that number, I found it staggering. It's the most flu deaths in over 40 years. And so a lot of times we think of influenza as you get sick and maybe the kids have to stay home from school. But it's a real life and death situation. And so, you know, the, the flu shot last year was about 40% effective, right. um, 60% not effective. I mean, that sounds terrible. But with the flu being a moving target, that's actually better than a lot of years with the flu shot. Um, a couple of things that we know also is only 75% or three quarters of healthcare workers received the vaccine. You can imagine that. The, only? Yeah. 25% of folks that didn't, they are effectively vectors because they're treating people with the flu. Yes. And then they give the flu to other people who don't have treatment. And so that's one of the reasons why many medical organizations require flu vaccines um, to try and stop the spread of that disease. And then also one of the things that we realized was, you know, the risks of, of potential complications of the vaccine, a lot of times Guillain-Barre syndrome, right. which is a progressive neuroparalysis um, where you basically become paralyzed. And then the spinal cord's affected, right? It, correct. It's an ascending paralysis from the feet all the way up to the head. And, and people can die from it if they don't have treatment. Most recover. Some suffer lifelong consequences. The risk of that is about one or two in a million oh. based on the numbers of people treated. Um, and we compare that to the risk of death of influenza in America last year was about one in 229. So, Not 229,000, 229. Yes, precisely. <laughs> so, you know, effectively one in a million versus one in about 230. And so the the math there, I'm not, not the best at math, but I think that's about uh, 2,184 times more likely to die from the flu <laughs> roughly, <laughs> rather than die from complications of the flu shot. And so it's one of those things that, you know, I've even had a, a more tempered approach about the flu shot in the past because there's some years it's only 10% effective. But, you know, I'll tell you an anecdotal story. Last year, I was able to get the flu shot prior to my family all falling sick with the flu. Everybody, wife, children, everybody was down and out for over a week. They felt terrible. And I was sick for about a day, but then I bounced right back. And I do attribute that to the, the flu shot because that was really the only difference. Um, so I would recommend the flu shot for everyone. In the past, it was a, a more soft recommendation, but I think especially after looking at these numbers from last year. A lot of death. It, it can be a resounding recommendation that you might just save a life, and it could be your own. Thank you, Andrew, for that update. And before we go to our break... It's time to pose the medical trivia question of the day. I have two 12-year-old sons, and we are now in our 19th season of Star Trek together. And in Star Trek Voyager, season two, which is our current season, there is an episode called Parturition. Parturition, P-A-R-T-U-R-I-T-I-O-N. In it, the doctor says that he is preparing a, quote, dermal osmotic sealant end quote, a dermal osmotic sealant to help with itching that he's expecting the crew to experience when they beam down to a planet that they have called planet hell. Yes, because the atmospheric vapors cause intense cutaneous pruritus itching. So my question to you is actually two parts. By what name would we know a dermal osmotic sealant at a drugstore near us? And for bonus points, what does the title mean? Parturition. Hint, it is also a medical term. Please stay tuned after the break for our interview on Dr. Doctor. 
Welcome back to Dr. Doctor. We're fortunate to have with us today Chris Faddis. Chris is the co-founder and the chief operating officer of Solidarity Health Share. Chris, thank you for being with us today on Dr. Doctor. Thank you for having me. Chris, health sharing is something that's been in the media. More and more people are doing it, but it's still a small minority of people in the United States, although it may be growing. How is health sharing similar to and different from health insurance? Yeah, you know, really the difference is obviously we all need to pay for our healthcare bills and we can't pay the big ones by ourselves. So what we do is our members forego insurance, they pay a monthly contribution, and then for that we share the medical bills among those contributions. So the three of us around the table would pay our money in, Andrew might have a bill, and then Andrew would submit that bill, and then the, the, we electronically then actually take funds from each of those accounts and pay that bill for Andrew as a, as a ministry. So rather than a third-party insurance company paying that or any of that, it's actually the members paying that bill for him. And Chris is right. We are around the table. We don't get this uh, pleasure often, but we're in Dallas at the annual meeting of the Catholic Medical Association. And Chris, isn't that what health insurance originally was? And did, did health insurance start as health sharing that devolved into the system we have now? I mean, I think in a lot of ways it did. I mean, obviously not in a specific structure, but a lot of this was people in the community paying. Wealthy folks would pay for the hospital and then other folks could, could be there. But if you look back in, in scripture, right, actually the apostles yes, were called to two. share yes. everything in common with one another. And so to, that's really where all of the structure and founding of this idea of sharing medical costs came from. And what this reminds me of is something that happened in New Haven, Connecticut over 120 or 30 years ago, is the Knights of Columbus and their life insurance for families that had nobody would look mm -hmm. out for widows and orphans. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's very much that same Father McGivney's passion and desire to help these widowed women uh, really was, uh, was the same kind of thing. Hey, some of us can do more. Some of us can do less, but we can all help these people and come together. And really what's amazing about it is you're, you're, you're really a self-pay patient. You're a private pay patient, but you're not going to be left alone in those bigger costs that you couldn't afford out of pocket. Man, that's wonderful. And, you know, I like how it has the basis in Scripture and the basis in our faith. There might be a lot of people listening to this that are really hesitant to jump on the health sharing bandwagon. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that you see holding people up from making the switch from traditional insurance? You know, it's, it's interesting because a lot of it has to do with, with um, either security. A lot of people are, well, you're really going to be able to pay the bill. What if this happens? What if that? There's a lot of the what ifs. Um, and, and then, you know, there's obviously just that whole piece of the newness of it because you're so used to I mean, we've even though insurance is really only 60, 70 years old, right, this whole idea of, of health insurance. And it's and it, you know, 30 years ago, it wasn't even for regular physicians visits. It was only for catastrophic. But we're so entrenched and ingrained. And that's how you pay for medical care as I pay a little premium here. So it's a it's a learning curve for people. And then there's just that piece. I had a gentleman recently at an event. He kept saying, we sat there for an hour and he said, I love what you're doing, but I just have this fear, you know? And he said, um, I keep thinking that insurance is security. And then I know it's not, you know? And so yeah. it's that war with, well, are you really going to be able to do it? And what I always tell people, there's certainly a, a certain aspect of trust that comes into this. Um, but it's also looking at the history. Healthcare sharing and the modern movement has been around for 40 years. People have been sharing continuously for 40 years. The bills do not get that high. We're able to discount them and those things. So that's one of the biggest fears for most people. Well, and, and one of the things that has really sparked my interest in health sharing is just the cost of health care. I was recently looking into some of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield when they were founded, and I believe in the in the 20s, Blue Cross, it might have been $6 a year to, to have your hospital stays right. covered. Um, now, health insurance is not even really that insure anymore. I, I have a lot of patients that tell me, oh, my plan said they were going to cover that, but it all went to my deductible. Mm -hmm. And so anymore, even though people may have health insurance, between the premiums and things getting dropped to their deductible, they're paying huge out-of-pocket costs. Right. I believe it's usually a lot less expensive with health sharing, isn't it? It really is. And we're actually seeing, we're hearing a lot more from providers who, are, who have a whole other level of charity care that they never had before, where they're having to write off care for families who can't afford their deductible. And we're hearing this a lot. So I, you know, one uh, pro-life OB clinic that told me that 
they're now having to raise an extra 10 to 20% what they used to have to raise to run their clinic because so many people can't afford the, the deductibles in their insurance. So what we're seeing is a lot of those providers are saying, hey, you need to go look at health sharing because, you know, for instance, you're, you're, rather than a premium, you're going to have a contribution. For a family, it's $449 a month as opposed to some people paying 2000 Our unshared amount for a family, annual unshared amount, which is similar to a deductible, is $1,500 a year, where some people are spending five or 10000 or more. So it really does help to, to solve that problem for the kind of this middle class that's now become almost a new working poor because of health insurance. Well, see, and that's the amazing thing, because even kind of a, an average health insurance plan, many families are going to be spending fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000 a month, you know, or $20,000 a year. And with the health, in, the health savings, the health uh, sharing, sharing yeah. rather, <laughs> it's going to be a lot less expensive. That might be five, $6,000 right. a year. So even that savings, easily $10,000 a year for most families. Right. You know, and I often tell a lot of families what I did when I first went on to health sharing, even before we started Solidarity, I was, you know, I joined one as we were starting this. And what I did is I took the difference of my, of what I had been paying in a premium and I threw it in the bank. And for about six months, and just in case, you know, you always have that, well, what if they don't pay it? Or what if this happens? But if they want that security, just save the money because, you know, it'll be there. And then if you have any out-of-pocket costs or anything, you'll have it. Uh, but I think what families find is they, they don't need it. You know, the, the, the sharing is very generous among the members. So uh, this sounds like it's coming under the category of if it's too good to be true, it's not true. But how is it that you can be less expensive than modern health insurance. And maybe you can tie in with it. How did we get to this place where we are with health insurance now? Yeah, I, I think that for us, obviously there's, there's very little of the middleman syndrome, right? So we don't have a bunch of middle people in the middle that get paid commissions and fees and all those kind of things. That's a, it's one part of it. We're also a not-for-profit organization. So uh, while there's, there's you know, admin fees and expenses and all those things, those are kept very minimal because we're not, we're not trying to satisfy investors. We're not trying to satisfy a, a profit margin for anyone and so that's an important piece we so really what we're what we're suggesting as that contribution is what we need to pay the bills um, but then also we do we, we're very um, kind of strategic in our discounting process so we start out with with what we what was called reference-based reimbursement right so you take a reference which typically is Medicare pricing and then you apply a percentage to that so when bills come in right away we actually discount them and we pay it on that discount. Now, 95% of the time, the provider accepts it. The other 5%, they'll come back and we'll negotiate. Um, and so that's the number one thing. In two years, we shared, we had $11 million in bills submitted, and we were able to discount that down to four, $4.5 million paid in full. Oh, so that's a massive uh, you know, savings for the members, and that's what's beautiful about it. We're saving it for the members. And what I hear from providers, just to make this clear, because you're both doctors, <laughs> I don't want to make you upset. Uh, and, and I believe Andrew might be a provider for some of our members, but we'll talk about that later, is I hear a lot from providers is that a lot of times our reimbursement, that what we actually will pay is sometimes better than the big insurance companies. Now, that may not be the case across the board, but we actually want our providers to be paid well, but we also want our members to be able to afford it so that we kind of play that line in the, in the middle there. Chris, this may be beyond your knowledge, but it might not be. How do you think we got to where we are with health insurance? Because we had this great bill in mm -hmm. 2010, right, the Affordable Care Act. And a lot of people don't realize it wasn't so much about health care, but about health insurance. Right. And yet it doesn't seem to be solving the problem. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, right, you, we, part of why we got here is because we've, we've put our trust in a system that, that is literally built to inflate cost. So if you look at, and everyone knows the hospital game of, of overbilling so they can do write-offs and then the insurance game and all these, there's all these pieces to it, right? So we said, hey, there's a problem. This is essentially what happened in this country. And, uh, you know, as a layperson, this is my take on it. We said, there's a problem. There's a lot of people who are uninsured. I agree that's a big problem, right? There's a lot of people who have pre-existing conditions they can't get insurance for. It's a problem. And, and, and we even are limited in that way as a health sharing ministry. But instead of solving that, going direct to the providers or, or working with those people, we decided to give ch blank check to insurance companies so they could inflate costs so that they could then cover and, and share and, or sorry, cover those pre-existing conditions. Well, if you have an industry that has been, that is literally had 30% or more waste for decades now, I mean, what is it, a $3 trillion spend in, in healthcare and they say at least $1 trillion's waste? 
if not more. I mean, some people have said up to 60%. That industry is the one that's supposed to fix the problem. So we continue to inflate the cost. The other part, sorry to go long here, but the other part I think is we've separated in, in not just through Affordable Care Act, but, but more so there, but it's been going on for a while. We've separated not only the patient from the payment, so they have no clue what it costs. They have no clue what they're getting into, and they have no clue how it's going to affect them down the road because all they know is I pay a fixed cost to my insurance company every month. We've also separated, in a lot of cases, we've separated the provider because most times the provider has no clue what the hospital system they work for and their billing company or the third-party billing company they're using, whoever it is. A lot of times the doctor doesn't even know what the reimbursement is or what they're going to get billed. And so we've, we've separated the two people who are going to see each other face-to-face, -face, right? Which makes it much easier to price gouge <laughs> because no one's going to talk about it and you're just going to get the bill and be mad at the doctor and the doctor's going to get the payment and be mad at the insurance company. And we've literally separated the conversation around price. When you, have the, when you and I have a conversation around price in, in, in person, you're going to get uncomfortable if you try to gouge me in front of me, right? So I think those are my layman's view of what's happened, and, and I'm seeing it more and more, and I'm hearing it even from providers, which is, which is actually uh, a good thing to know that, that doctors and providers and even some you know, surgical centers and hospitals, they see the problem as well. And so hopefully we're on our way to a fix. Yeah, I, I think you hit on a couple key points there. And, and one of the things that the people who drafted the Affordable Care Act, they didn't realize that just because people may have health insurance, they might not have any better access to health care. Or if we magically get health insurance for a lot of people who didn't have it, the idea that this somehow would be budget neutral or that would save money someplace else. I mean, for people who were paying for health insurance 10 years ago as, as opposed to now, it's just incredible. And right. so many people are working, you know, two days a week just to pay for health insurance. And these are healthy people. Right, right. Yeah, the amount of people I've heard that their their health insurance is more than their mortgage or they can't afford a mortgage because of their health insurance. I mean, it's, it's just, it's mind boggling, but then they still can't afford to go to the doctor because their deductible is too high. I mean, it's really a mess when you think about that and to know that and to know as a provider that you can't even see your patient when they need you because they can't afford to walk in your door. That's not what any provider I know wants to see happen. Well, and I love the idea of cost transparency as well because that's one of the things that patients, you know, it, a lot of times patients come in and they have this expectation that we really need to go in and look into something. And there's always a decision tree there, right? You know, is this something that we give it a little time, watch it, or do we go full speed and do, do the investigation? That investigation might cost $10,000. Right. If you're not paying for it, well, sure, we'll do it. Exactly. If you're, if you're responsible for that first, you know, $1,500 and you know somebody else, your neighbor is paying for the rest of it, all of a sudden you're a lot more responsible and mm -hmm. say, this might be something we can ride out for a month and just see if it gets better on its own. Yeah. So I, I think it's a huge opportunity for cost control. And you, you had mentioned um, I see in patients, and I, I definitely have. I have a large number of patients who are on health sharing. It's really been an awesome, awesome experience for me because as a physician, we do get reimbursed uh, fairly, justly, I think. And then on the part of the patient, there's a lot more discrimination insofar as how they want to proceed with health care. They're not going to do uh, superfluous things, or when something is brought up, they say, you know, Doc, how important is this really? Is this something that I need to do, or is this something that we could go either way on? So I, I think it leads to a lot, a lot better care for patients. Yeah, that's amazing. And that brings us to the end of the first half of the interview on Dr. Doctor. We'll be back with more of Chris Faddis and health sharing after the break. This is Dr. Andrew Mullally returning from Dallas, Texas at the National CMA Educational Conference. And today we're talking with Chris about health sharing ministries. And, you know, Chris, one of the things that a lot of people are, are worried about and Obamacare was supposed to solve was pre-existing conditions. Mm -hmm. How is that addressed in health sharing? Yeah, you know, it's, it's addressed differently by each sharing ministry. Uh, and we have a few different ways we, we deal with them. First of all, we take certain, certain pre-existing conditions that would be considered lifestyle affected, right? Like diabetes, obesity, uh, hypertension. And we actually categorize, categorize those as a conditional membership 
uh, where we encourage the members to go through a wellness program. So we actually have a coaching program with a dietitian, and we're trying to help them, right? You're motivating regulate. them. Yeah, motivating them, right? And we're actually expanding that program now to, to do some more things with them. But, but like somebody with diabetes, I mean, you can actually truly control diabetes with diet. I mean, there's ways to do and, and exercise and all those things. We've had interviews on here, two so far, that have talked about the fact that the U.S. government is is doing this unwittingly by promoting a high carb diet. High carb actually right. leads to more diabetes and more heart disease. Exactly. I just thought was, I just sat with a physician yesterday for an hour talking about that. So, yeah, it, it's really amazing. And so we we do that. So that's the first one. And if you're a part of that program and you participate, then you're fully shareable for that condition. So if something did happen related to that condition, it would be fully shareable. So so they have skin in the game. Exactly. Oh. And they're incentivized if they graduate from that program. So let's say somebody was a pre-diabetic and they they lower or their A1C score for a certain amount of time, they actually can graduate from the program and, and, and no longer have to be a part of it. And then and we're now building in some kind of check-ins, like they would graduate and maybe have a three-month appointment or something. So that's an important piece. Um, the other piece is, is other pre-existing conditions. Things like cancer are a little bit harder, right? So obviously, um, I have a, a heart for cancer patients, but unfortunately, if someone's in the middle, in the throes of cancer, it would cripple the, the membership if we started just accepting that. So it, cancer has to have been in remission for five years in order to to be accepted into the program, unfortunately. Uh, but then uh, other pre-existing conditions are looked at individually, and if they are defined as pre-existing, then we actually graduate them in. So what happens is who defines it? So we have a so we have a medical team that reviews their file and they make a decision based on on the condition first of all, but also on the person, right? Uh, there's certain conditions people have come to us with where they've really done a good job of managing it and doing well, and so we we can make those exceptions. So, but but when they pre-existing condition, it's it's one year of no sharing for that condition. Everything else is shareable. Year two, they get up to twenty five thousand for that condition, and year three, they get up to twenty five thousand for that condition. After that, it's fully shareable under the guidelines. So so they're really kind of grandfathered into the program, and then everything else outside of that condition is shareable to uh, pursuant to the guidelines. So we're not limiting them and their, the rest of their health. Now, some conditions that won't work for, maybe the expenses are higher than 25,000, but many we've found people say, well, I can handle that. I mean, I'm paying a lot of stuff out of pocket anyway, so for a year I paid a lot of pocket, and then I'm on that, that, that piece. That sounds beautiful. Now, obviously, you were meant for getting into health sharing because you worked in the restaurant business, right. and you're an entrepreneur. <laughs> that was supposed to be sarcasm. So, Chris, why did you start Solidarity Health Share. You know, it's uh, it's interesting. A lot of people. I think I'm in that that category with a lot of folks who their their life's work came out of their life their life's greatest pain. And for me, my wife. And if, in fact, we're doing this interview six years from the day that my wife passed away, um, and she had colon cancer. And so, uh, God bless her soul. She truly inspired me in a lot of ways. But one of those was the experience of a the negative side of dealing with the healthcare system and some of the hospital system and those things. Um, as well as the positive side <laughs> of dealing with, you know, being able to raise money among the Christian community to pay for some of her care, finding a hospital that did have true patient-centered, compassionate care, and meeting physicians and nurses that did that. And so in seeing those things, I kept say, thinking, gosh, I'm supposed to be involved in this. I'm supposed to help with this. I'm supposed to do this. When the HHS mandate came out, you know, we really started looking at that. And I think those things coming together, it was actually the year she died on Pentecost Sunday. I was sat with a friend and we started talking about it. We came up with health sharing we thought was the solution for Catholics. And so we just spent the rest of that summer really delving in and, and deciding to do this. So it honestly was my, my life's, the worst part of my life led to the work that I do, which I probably will do the rest of my life. So that's how I got into it. And I think it's interesting because running restaurants and businesses and doing marketing for movies and things. I think a lot of those experiences, interestingly enough, have helped me <laughs> to, to this point to be able to look at healthcare from a different lens um, and hopefully help continue to be a part of the change as a ministry. Now, you're, you're involved with Solidarity Health Share, and you guys have been up and running for how many years now? So the ministry, so we started six years ago on this project while Angela was dying, but we launched two years ago publicly. Okay, the ministry that we partnered with that actually basically said, here's an exemption under the Affordable Care Act for healthcare sharing ministries. We want to help Catholics. They've been around since 1977. Okay, but wonderful. Solidarity, as it, we you know, rebranded the name and opened it up to the, to the general public, uh, was in 2016. And we went from eight members on day one 
literally eight households, which tell, try to explain that to your wife, how you're going to pay for something if something happens. <laughs> I'm remarried, explaining that to her. But we are today have 5,000 households and, and over 12,000 souls in two years, which is a beautiful oh, a thing. Blessing. And it continues to grow by about four or 500 a month. Man, that's wonderful. Yeah. And so what, you know, I, I'm envisioning some of our listeners at home and they're on the fence. You know, it, it sounds great, but they're a little nervous. What would be the biggest things you would tell them to, to encourage them to think about health sharing? Sure. You know, everyone wants a guarantee. And unfortunately, because of insurance law, we cannot use terms like guarantee. But what I'll tell people is that uh, our, our members are faithful to their contributions. Um, we, we take stewardship extremely seriously we, we we literally calculate every cost of what we're doing and and making sure that we're being reasonable and and, and uh, paying fairly in those things but also paying in a way that is that's going to be sustainable i and also you know people assume we haven't had the big things but i what i like to tell people is just the examples our first big case was a stroke and we had only had 400 members at the time i was so nervous those bills were paid satisfactorily. That man actually now works for us. Wow. So seven, 15 months later, he came to work for us. He's a great man. Um, uh, we, we've had West Nile. We've had amputations. We've had everything. So the reality is all those fears, are, you know, are, are they're there because we've been told about this big behemoth of the awful thing. The other thing is that I, I believe the number is something like less than half of a percent of all medical bills ever exceed a million dollars. So people always assume that we're going to have these $3 million things with the discounting and the repricing and the negotiations. We bills do not get that high. They just don't. My wife's cancer, 17 months, it didn't approach a million dollars. And that was before discounting. Once they, once the insurance and once everything was done, it was down below $300,000. And that was with multiple surgeries and things. So we really do keep the cost low. Those fears we are, um, I, th- I mean, they're, they're real and you have to consider those. Um, but I think that's one of those things that people have to understand. A lot of times when they, when they hear those stories, they go, Oh, okay. So you can handle a heart attack. You can have, cause everyone's, we're always worried about the big bad thing. Right. So well, here might be a, a little more difficult question for you. What is the reason a person should not Give up their health insurance. Yeah. Well, you know, you, you do need to be willing to pay attention to your health care. And that is a, an important piece. If you think of this as, as a I'm owed something and therefore you must give me whatever I want and I, will, I won't consider the cost and you just have to deal with it, you're not the best candidate. You know, and, and you do need to pay pay attention. Now, we do a lot of work for our members in the negotiation and, and all of that and helping them understand it. But we want them to have skin in the game. We love it when they go to healthcarebluebook.com and look up the price of a procedure and ask us questions like, hey, does this seem appropriate? Uh, we want them to actually pay attention to their bills and make sure that they didn't get overbilled for something. Uh, so if somebody's saying, hey, I just want it out of the box. I don't want to even think about it. I want to go. I want everything I can get. I want an MRI every year just in case. You know, that's not necessarily the best healthcare sharing minister or member. If they want to take control of their health care and they want to have a decision in their health care and their family's health care, uh, they want to partner with, with an organization who will help them through that and guide them. If they want their dollars to go to the good of other people, they're a good fit. So, so you have a mechanism in place really to select the kind of patients who will thrive in this system. Yeah, we do our best. It doesn't always work. Sometimes people just join, you know, and then they're like, well, wait, I thought I joined an insurance. So we, but we do a lot of education. So when, when our members come on, I mean, they're, they can call as many times as they want. We're communicating things with them. We're telling them. Our sales team actually has to go through four weeks of training, and every week they have a test. If they don't get more than an 85%, they're not, they're not hired. And so we, they have to know how to educate people on health sharing in their sales process. And so that's something we take seriously. And, and uh, you know, hopefully that works if the members listen. <laughs> well, and you guys are a Catholic health sharing organization. Yes. How does that make you different than other health sharing organizations? I mean, the biggest thing, obviously, is we're faithful to the teachings of the Catholic Church. Uh, and we, we are very, you know, uh, diligent about that. Uh, some of the differences between other health shares are, are things like unwed pregnancies sometimes aren't shareable because you weren't living by biblical principles if you had an unwed pregnancy. We see that differently. A pregnancy is a pregnancy. A woman, a, a life is a life. We 
we try to take care of that child. Um, we also have just expanded to mental health. So we actually share in mental health because from a Catholic social teaching standpoint, we felt very strongly that this is a scourge in our society today and, and we really should be helping. Now it's limited, it's a certain amount of mental health visits, there is an inpatient care, but we are doing that. So we're the only healthcare sharing ministry out there today that shares in mental health. Um, we also share in NAPRO technology and, and uh, NFP, uh, uh, training, excuse me, education. So uh, the instruction of NFP. We also share in, um, I'm sorry, I already said NAPRO technology. So, so you know, pro-life, pro-women, fertility treatments are, are shareable. So those are some of the things where we just take from our Catholic faith and the richness of what Catholic medicine, which is what we're celebrating this week, uh, is doing. We take from that and we say, hey, we need to be a part of that. We need to share in that. So as we head toward wrapping this up, how can somebody learn if your health sharing organization is for them. Well, definitely, uh, our website has a lot of information, solidarityhealthshare.org, uh, but we also have a, a phone number, 844-313-4999, and there's reps available about 12 hours a day to answer questions, and so we encourage people to call call as many times as they want, send emails, ask as many questions as they want, uh, and when they're ready to pull the trigger, we'll help them. I do encourage people to know that when you join, you'll be a member on the first of the next month, so if you're, you know, you're, you're in a situation where you have to make a decision, you got to get that process started so you can be through all those questions. And are there any final things that you'd like listeners to know? You know, I encourage, I got to say that I, and this isn't just because I'm sitting in front of two doctors, but I thought about this this week. I want to encourage folks, this isn't what our topic was, but is to seek out the Catholic physicians in their area to go to. Because I, I just, in spending time with these great physicians, and not, I'm not even talking about you two because I've not spent that much time with you at this conference, but, <laughs> but there's just such a heart and a compassion and a love for the church and for the people of God. And I think we as Catholics need to do a better job seeking those, you all and these physicians and supporting their practices and, and you know, helping those practices thrive. So I want to encourage people, obviously, to join Solidarity HealthShare, <laughs> but also whether they're a member of Solidarity or not, to find a Catholic physician in their area and to, to make that their primary physician for whatever it is they need. Chris Faddis, Chief Operating Officer, Co-Founder of Solidarity HealthShare, thank you so much for being with Dr. Doctor today. Thank you. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, coming to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio, and we are here with the long-awaited answer to the medical trivia question. Tom, yes. what do we got? And this question comes from Star Trek, no less. And in season two, the doctor at one point mentions making from scratch a dermal osmotic sealant. What is it? And the title of the episode was Parturition. What is parturition? Well, a dermal osmotic sealant is just a lowly little moisturizer. Dermal refers to the skin. Osmotic refers to the movement of water through a semipermeable membrane from an area of higher concentration of solute to a lower concentration of solute. Who cares? And that's really not what's going on anyway, but people think water moving with um, osmosis. And then sealant means keeping, keeping the moisture in. So a dermal osmotic sealant is just a moisturizer. Secondly, what is parturition? Ooh, that was a great term for medical school. And yeah, I used it in Star Trek. Andrew, I know you know the answer to that. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I'm wondering how these two fit together. I am not a Star Trek buff, but uh, it's amazing that you can get both of these in the same episode. Well, and it's wonderful, too, because this is paying homage to two of the three hosts. I managed to work dermatology and obstetrics and gynecology into the same question. Partuition is just another word for what our, our blessed producer is going to be going through soon. It's childbirth. <laughs> yes. I love it. And I almost wonder about the dermal osmotic sealant. Maybe we should give that feedback to them. I mean, that would sound fancier. Right? Yeah, I, I like it. I mean, people buy things with bigger words on it, or do they? That's the medical talk right there. That's medical talk. Yes. And so now you know what part tuition and a dermal osmotic sealant are. So we're moving right along to some questions from listeners. I will pose the question. The answer will answer. No, his name is Andrew. Starts like answer. Andrew's going to answer the question and we'll have a little conversation. First of two questions. A woman writes, I am a recent convert. I got my tubes tied before I met my husband. We would love to have children of our own someday. I was wondering if you knew of any local Catholic doctors that can do a reversal at a reasonable cost as we have three boys in Catholic schools. Wow, that's a great question. I'm really glad actually that you wrote in to ask that. That is a uh, 
It's an amazing story. I'm really happy both for your conversion and your your openness to life, which is usually a even a second conversion for a lot of people. So that is wonderful. Tubal reversals, which is kind of the, the crux of the issue there, are something that can be done, but unfortunately they're not widely available. Many people who undergo tubal ligation may not appreciate how permanent of a procedure that can be. However, we are blessed to have some folks that specialize in repairing that. The best place I would recommend going is fertilitycare.org. This is part of the Pope Paul VI Institute and Dr. Hilger's and the NAPRO technology, part of that organization. And in there, you can find doctors who specialize in infertility, and they could direct you to the, the best person for a local resource, depending on where you're at. We're, we here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, are blessed to have a new physician, um, relatively new to Fort Wayne, Dr. Blaze Milburn, who is going to be doing those tubal reanastomoses here at our local hospitals. There are many areas throughout the country where it's not readily available, so unfortunately, it's something you may have to travel for, but I would encourage you to do that wholeheartedly as children are such a blessing. And when you go to that website, fertilitycare.org, you'll click on uh, Find a Medical Consultant. And then there's two pages of names, which include doctors in 30 states in the United States, three provinces of Canada, Mexico, uh, and Nigeria. So you can find uh, doctors throughout the country who have been trained in this procedure. Our second question comes from another woman who asks, do you believe that it is safe for a woman to take a birth control pill for hormone imbalances? She says, I keep hearing it's too high of a cancer risk. And the other thing I hear is that's fine to do this. Which is it? Man, that's a great question as well. You know, that's, that's one of the things that you're going to get different answers depending on who you talk to based on how much they know about this. Having recently gone through medical training, I can tell you that the risks of oral contraceptives and birth control pills were not something that were highlighted. Maybe they were acknowledged, maybe not, depending on the bias of the person, unfortunately, who is teaching you. But we know beyond a shadow of a doubt the risks associated, especially with estrogen-containing birth control pills over time, especially in regard to breast cancer. Um, all comers, about one in eight women, unfortunately, get breast cancer throughout their life. And when you have exogenous, outside of the body, extra estrogen put onto a woman, usually who's in the fertile age, she's already got her own estrogen, this is more than you need, that leads to an increased risk of breast cancer. And so uh, to some extent, I, I would say very clearly, it is not safe. Um, and even though you know, you are referring to hormone imbalances. There's a lot to unpack there. If there's an, a defect or a deficit in one of the hormones, especially estrogen or progesterone, it should not be really taken as a birth control pill. Birth control pills take no, no, they really couldn't care less what part of the cycle you're on. They are going to shout over your body's natural rhythm and natural tendencies. And so you might be taking progesterone when your body's trying to crank out estrogen. And that's one of the ways that it, it works as a contraceptive. The thing that you really want to do that would correct the deficit and restore an imbalance to a healthy balance would be to supplement the appropriate hormone at the appropriate time. And that's really best done through charting. Um, there's, there's several ways to do that, but to chart your cycle and to identify the time in between the, the menstrual periods there is an ovulation. Before the ovulation, estrogen is predominant. After the ovulation, progesterone is predominant. You want to give them at the right times, and that can be identified also with lab work. So I would definitely do this in concert with a physician that you trust. Uh, I, I do generally recommend the NAPRO technology physicians because they undergo extensive training in this area. But I would say that it is not the best option to take birth control pills, it'd be much better to supplement the hormones when they need to be supplemented. And from the words of our wise co-host, Chris Stroud, uh, this is his bailiwick. He says that, quote, targeted bioidentical hormone replacement, end quote, is really what you're looking for. Uh, in other words, giving the body exactly what it needs to reiterate what, what Andrew said. Uh, next, euthanasia. On a recent show, I updated uh, listeners on the fact that the American Academy of Family Physicians um, General Assembly or whoever the group is, not all of the nationwide, voted over two to one to 
have engaged neutrality as their stance toward euthanasia. And Andrew, you have an update on that. And, and even more specifically, a type that we, we would call uh, physician-assisted suicide, where basically the American Academy of Family Physicians, they're supposed to represent family doctors throughout America. They don't represent me. Um, have elected, basically, to say that they are neutral on whether or not it is a good idea for doctors to kill their parents or their patients, who might be their parents. <laughs> um, it's, it's amazing to me that anyone can be neutral on whether or not killing patients is a good idea. But the family physician group said that that's, that's how they'd like to proceed. And they're kind of in a pickle because there are places in America where it is legal to kill your patients, um, and there's places in America where it's illegal. And so they want to find a way to make everybody on equal playing field, and so they say they're neutral, but I think that's the wrong way to go about it. I would much rather suggest what the, the CEJA committee of the AMA has said. That is the Ethics Committee of the American Medical Association. They had said after a two-year study we should stay opposed to physician-assisted suicide. Unfortunately, there were many proponents that voted that out, and they said, push this back to committee. We want the committee to restudy it, see if you guys can find a way to make assisted suicide a good thing. Well, the committee restudied it, <laughs> and thank goodness they, they came out just recently and said, we need to maintain our opposition to this. So the AMA surprisingly gets one right and says that we're going to stay opposed to this, that we'll have to go to a General Assembly vote probably next summer. Um, but the AAFP family practice physicians got it wrong, sorely wrong, and that's why I don't pay dues to them anymore. <laughs> so I, I would uh, suggest if, if you are an engaged listener or you have the ear of someone uh, in those organizations to congratulate or reprimand them as appropriate. Thanks for that update, Andrew. And one uh, addition to that uh, second question on taking birth control pills, I would refer you back to episode 17 of Dr. Doctor when we interviewed Dr. Patrick Young from St. Louis on medical use of oral contraceptive pills. There's a long and excellent conversation we had with him. So thank you all for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor. Please, if you're listening on iTunes, leave a review. That'll help us get more listened to. We are the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, brought to you from the studios of Redeemer Radio. If you'd like more information on the Catholic Medical Association, you can find us on our website, cathmed.org. That's C-A-T-H-M-E-D dot O-R-G. Thanks for listening. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until next time. Remember, your medical decisions may have profound consequences, so please choose wisely and choose Catholic. Tune in for Dr. Doctor every Friday and Saturday afternoon at 1, or find new episodes at RedeemerRadio.com doctor or in the Redeemer Radio app. Have a question for our doctors? Call or text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at RedeemerRadio.com doctor.